This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, Counterspin, Le Show, Democracy Now!, and activism from the Chicago-based We Charge Genocide. The reason why torture exists, the reason why down through the years and down through history, governments have used torture is very simple and very straightforward. Torture helps you to build a case to do what you want to do. It does not help in finding the truth. I, I know I know a lot of you have watched a lot of cop shows, the old 24 show with the ticking time bomb and and was it Kevin Spacey or something. What was this? Keither Kiefer Sutherland. That's right. Uh, Donald Sutherland's son. Uh, it's a lie. It's not how it works. You know, I've, I've seen enough cop shows, you know, where the guy sticks the cop sticks a knife in the bad guy's leg or punches him hard enough. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, OK, I'll tell you, it's it's over at the fourth and fourth of the you know, occasionally, but not for anything high stakes. And real torture, the kind of torture that we were doing, the kind of torture that lasts day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month, and in the case of the people in Guantanamo, now year after year after year, real torture provides the answers that the torturer wants. Not necessarily the truthful answers, but the answers the torturer wants. If you look at the case of the two highest-profile Highest, highest Al-Qaeda members who were directly involved with 9-11, Al-Libi and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. These were the two guys who had the most information. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed actually planned 9-11. Al-Libi was involved in moving money around here and there and other things like this. If you look at the history of this, and this is, you know, when people call me up and they say, you know, torture, torture works and just go ahead and do it in my name. I would say you have not read this Senate torture report. You, and you've never actually talked to anybody who, who interrogates people for a living. Because if you had, if you ever talked to somebody who interrogates people for a living, you find out that the technique that you use, the most effective technique that you use to get information out of people is building a relationship with them, finding out their core values and finding co- areas of commonality and core values. It takes, it doesn't take an enormous amount of time. So anyhow, with Al-Libi and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, what happened? We arrested them. We turned them over to the FBI. The FBI are professional interrogators. The CIA are not. As John Brennan pointed out last week, when the CIA was given this job six days after 9-11, they had never before run an interrogation center. They had they did not have trained interrogators. They had never, you know, run uh, torture centers. They had never run interrogations. They didn't have any. They had to build them in, 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 uh, countries outside the United States because they knew what they were doing was illegal. And they didn't want it to be inside the United States. They wanted to minimize the probability that they themselves would be prosecuted. So they did it in Poland and places like that. So anyhow, with Alibi and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the FBI interrogated them using just strand, standard technique. You know, good cop, bad cop, yell at you, talk with you, bring you a sandwich, get to know you. Talk about your family, talk about your values, talk, you know, building this rapport. And in just a few days, we got virtually all of the details 
on on bin Laden and on the 9-11 and everything from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He gave it all to us. And and uh, Al-Libi, the same, same deal. He gave it all to us. You go back and listen to John Brennan's speech last week, which the media says he says was defending torture. It was not defending torture. He said, I can't tell you that the order, he said, people on whom enhanced interrogation techniques were used did provide us with information. Well, that's true. But they provided us with information before the enhanced interrogation techniques, a.k.a. torture, were used. So what happened? I had a conversation with Ray McGovern on Friday night about this, and, and I think you might find it very interesting. It should be up over on the on, – it'll be on our website soon. Ray McGovern, a 30-year CIA uh, veteran, he used to prepare the presidential daily briefings for the president. He'd been involved. He was a uh, military officer He uh, in intelligence. I mean, th- this guy, his whole life was in the intelligence service. And he pointed out that that when they arrested Al-Libi and when they arrested Khalid uh, Sheikh Mohammed, they got good information from them, and they began acting on that, and that arguably led directly to the capture of Osama bin Laden. But in the midst of this, George Bush was trying to convince us all we needed to go to war in Iraq. And the American people were opposed to it, overwhelmingly. And so George Bush ordered al-Libi to be sent to Egypt to be tortured because he wouldn't say you know yeah Saddam Hussein had anything to do with this because he didn't Saddam Hussein was was a, a, a Bathist he was he was a secular Sunni Arab and Osama bin Laden hated him Osama bin Laden after he got kicked out of Afghanistan went back to Saudi Arabia put together an army and tried to invade Iraq to take down to take down Saddam Hussein. These guys were mortal enemies. There's no way Saddam Hussein would allow even one Al-Qaeda guy in Iraq. But Bush needed somebody to say that, that Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda were working hand in hand, and therefore you could tie Saddam Hussein to 9-11. He had nothing to do with 9-11. He had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. There had never been a suicide bombing in Iraq in its 7,000-year history. So they take Al-Libi over to Egypt and they torture him. And in order to get them to stop, and some of these torture techniques involve like, you know, threatening to or raping your children in front of you, crushing one kid's testicles, seven-year-old boy's testicles in front of his father. I mean, this is bizarre stuff. And Al-Libi goes like, okay, okay, I, I give. Yeah, Saddam Hussein was involved. And George Bush took that information and reported it to us reported it to the United Nations, and used that confession obtained under torture, which was a lie, to justify the war in Iraq. That's when torture works. When you know what you want someone to say. There's a reason why they tortured witches in Massachusetts in the late 1600s in the United States. Women. To get them to confess to being witches. The reason, the reason why they tortured people in ancient Europe. Either to get the information that King Henry wanted, or to scare the hell out of his political opponents. It's never to get the truth.
we know that the Senate put out the torture report and um, there's been a debate in this country as to whether uh, the CIA was justified in doing the torture, whether it actually was torture or not. Uh, unfortunately, we showed you a poll earlier in the week uh, saying that a uh, majority of Americans uh, believe that it was justified. And, um, and, and a plurality of them even said they didn't want to see the report. Nah, just go ahead and do it in our name, but just don't tell us. It's amazing, right? Well, I uh, think progress looked into a little bit more, and Jack Jenkins wrote a very good story about this and about how Christians should react and how they, in fact, in reality, reacted to this news. Turns out, Christians polled were actually more likely than the general public to support torture. Now, this is quite ironic. He's going to point out how ironic it is in a second. But first, let's go to Sarah Posner's uh, work uh, in terms of identifying how the numbers broke down. Just 39% of white evangelicals believe the CIA's treatment of detainees amounted to torture, with 53% of white non-evangelical Protestants and 45% of white Catholics agreeing with that statement. So a minority of white evangelicals are saying it's torture, even though there was anal rape involved, one person was killed, and the list goes on and on, right? Okay, 69% of the white evangelicals believe the CIA treatment was justified. Justified. 69% of people who are the most die-hard Christians in the country, compared to just 20% who said it was not. A full three-quarters of white non-evangelical Protestants outnumber 20% of their brethren in saying that CIA treatment was justified. White Catholics believe the treatment was justified by a 66 to 23 margin. So, as you can see here, all of those different groups uh, that are in different brackets of the Christian religion uh, polling very high at the very high end of the entire American spectrum. Uh, yes, the enhanced interrogation techniques were justified, including, by the way, I mean, we gloss over it, but we kept beating them, and we punched them, we slapped them, we threw them against the wall, we hung them from the walls, <laughs> we put them in coffins, did mock executions, said we were going to rape their mothers and kill their children. <laughs> Those were not idle threats, at least they were not meant to be idle threats to the detainees. The detainees took them very, very seriously, especially given what had just happened to them. We did these things called rectal hydrations and feedings, which of course were not necessary. And so, hence, they put a hose in people's backside. And that's what we normally call rape. Okay, uh, And all that was done, and apparently in overwhelming numbers, the Christians in this country say, go get them. Now, Jack Jenkins is going to point out the irony of this. He says, these numbers are appalling, theologically repugnant, and frankly confusing. Christianity is a tradition whose Savior, Jesus Christ, was arrested, wrongfully accused, and tortured. Things the gospel stories make clear were gross mistreatments. Christ was also crucified, a form of capital punishment that was specifically designed to torture right up until the moment of death. This was something I've been saying for a long time, but I'm not a Christian, right? It, I pointed out, uh, and but I, I read the Bible, I read the New Testament. <laughs> Everybody knows how that story ends, right? Jesus was literally tortured to death. How could any Christian be in favor of torture? How could you look at the things that they did to these detainees? By the way, over 20% of them whom were innocent, I mean, if you believe in the story of Jesus Christ, they were innocent just like Jesus. It's not, 
oh, come on, not like Jesus, that's an insult. No, no, just like Jesus. They did, I mean, they weren't prophets, they weren't the Son of God or, or anything, but they didn't do it. They had the wrong guy. One guy they kidnapped, turns out, had the same name as another guy they were looking for. They tortured him for months. And then they're like, oh, sorry, oops, wrong guy. And then they just drop him off in a different country entirely and run away. That happened for over 20% of the detainees that they tortured. Ah, sorry, we got the wrong guy. Christians say, ah, that's okay. Now, mind you, it's not all Christians. And actually, Christian leadership on this has been very good. Even the Southern Baptists, who sometimes you know, uh, can be in favor of the death penalty, which is also not correct according to the uh, you know, Bible. <laughs> I don't know where they draw that line, right? But, but in this case, even Richard Land, who I disagree with greatly on political matters, say that this is torture, and obviously as a Christian, you should be dead set against it. But the majority of Christians on the, in the country, unfortunately, overwhelmingly so, are not in that camp. And uh, Jenkins points out, in fact, this is the height of irony, Christians often wear a symbol of this torture, the cross, around their necks, supposedly as a reminder of the tragedy of Christ's death. And finally, he concludes the piece by saying, ultimately, the results of this poll begs a troubling question. If Christians cannot stand against torture, the very tool used to kill Jesus, what do they stand for? It is an excellent question. I'm not a Christian, so I can't answer it. But if you're a Christian out there and you're in favor of these techniques, you tell me, how on God's green earth can you wear that cross around your neck and be in favor of torture? Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers Someone who's there Feeling unknown and you're all alone Flesh and bone by the telephone Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer In the wake of horrific revelations about the CIA's torture of terrorism suspects, many of whom turned out to have no ties at all to militant groups, ABC World News made a decision not to consider how such nightmarish things came to happen and how we can make certain they'll never happen again, but to fearmonger that the release of the information might lead to violence against Americans. On alert, will report put Americans in danger, was the graphic, while Martha Raddatz told viewers that the report includes some details never heard before and many people fearing tonight that revealing them will lead to violence. Well, there's no question about who she means. Raddatz spelled it out, quote, The Muslim world has erupted many times before when the U.S. and the West have been accused of religious and cultural slights, close quote. The report describes detainees being forced to stand on broken legs, deprived of sleep for up to 180 hours, or having CIA agents threaten to sexually abuse their mothers. Are these the sorts of slights, she means? Naturally, the segment can't end without the claim that, quote, if this report is released, groups like ISIS will take full advantage, close quote. 
turning the U.S. into the potential victim of the story of the U.S.'s actual crimes is nothing short of perverse. And U.S. citizens are hardly served by a press corps so eager to close the book on CIA torture that some aren't even willing to open it. She's writing, she's writing, she's writing a novel. She's writing, she's weaving, conceiving a plot. It quickens, it thickens, you can't put it down now. It takes you, it shakes you, it makes you lose your thought. But you're caught in your own glory. You are believing your own stories. Writing your own headlines, ignoring your own deadlines. But now you've got to write them all again. Late Friday. So you, so you shouldn't notice. The Obama administration ended up paying um, more than a quarter of a million dollars to settle a lawsuit from Abdullah Al-Kid, an American citizen who was arrested in 2003, imprisoned for 16 days, repeatedly strip-searched, and left naked in his cell. He was held on the grounds that he was a potential witness in a terrorism case. Quote, The government acknowledges that your arrest and detention as a witness was a difficult experience for you and regrets any hardship or disruption to your life that may have resulted said the Justice Department in a letter to Mr. Kidd. And, of interest to more people than Mr. Kidd, you know Central Intelligence Agency Director John Brennan, not previously known, consulted the White House before ordering agency personnel to spy on a computer being used by the Senate Intelligence Committee in its investigation of the CIA's torture program. This we now learn from a report by the CIA's Inspector General. A report completed last year, only released by the agency this week. It reveals Brennan spoke with the White House Chief of Staff before CIA employees were ordered to to use whatever means necessary to determine how certain sensitive internal documents, i.e. the Panetta Review, which was an internal review of the CIA's torture program that found pretty much the same stuff as the Senate investigation found. How that had wound up in the hands of Senate investigators, because they were never supposed to see it. The conversation with McDonough came after Brennan first issued the directive, but before he reiterated it to a CIA attorney leading the probe. This also came before the CIA revealed its search to the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, whose staff was the target of the snooping. This new information suggesting the White House was aware of and didn't stop the CIA's computer snooping on the Senate, a separate branch of government, is unlikely to improve relations between the Senate Intelligence Committee and the executive branch. Feinstein has said the CIA's computer search likely violated the Constitution's separation of powers. This uh, not admitted or known before to the public. But the the executive branch itself didn't reveal it. It was revealed, as I say, by the CIA inspector general because it is the most transparent administration in history. You know, you know, I ordered a halt to the torture because that's just not who we are. But you can't go forward looking backwards. Running government? Or a car. And yet, 
Some folks just couldn't stop poking through mistakes some patriots had made. At first, I, I thought they were joking, just raining on our parade. Sure, an inspector general made a scary secret report, but I fully expected our senators to cut the whole thing short. Instead, they went on a witch hunt. And of course, some witches were found. If spies were all nice people, they'd be working down at the pound. The most transparent White House in history. And it's worth it, despite the fuss. Because we're always looking through you. And you can see right through us. You know, you know, we never said we wanted the Senate's report to be suppressed. We just tried to exile the stuff that would hurt folks in the Middle East and the Middle West. The names of our agents, the names of our programs, the countries hosting black sites, how often we waterboarded some folks, how many we gave sleepless nights. The guys we hung from the ceiling, the guys we just didn't feed, the guys we did feed through their poop holes, although they were cleared to be freed. They were just a few little edits. It didn't detract from the text. But our senators were being stubborn. We didn't know what to do next. The most transparent White House in history. From our point of view, that's a plus. We're always looking for you. And you can see right through us. You know, you know, then somehow the senators found a secret internal review. It agreed with their conclusions. That's a very dangerous thing to do. We had to know how they achieved it. To keep them from doing it again. You don't want senators finding uh, stuff we're hiding from them. So we gave very specific instructions to have their computers surveilled. Snooping to find their snooper so that he might be jailed. Now, we didn't mention it earlier. We were waiting to reveal it now. Disclosing our lack of disclosure is taking the edge off of Al. The most transparent White House in history. There's nothing left to discuss. We're always looking through you. And you can see right through us.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capitalism. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. All right, we're told by the right-wingers all the time that oh, Guantanamo Bay is very important. We can't let the terrorists come on our home turf like they're going to somehow break out of a maximum security prison in Colorado and run rampant through uh, Boulder, Colorado. That's not what's going to happen. Uh, but they're so scared. This is, and, we, and we put them down in Gitmo, those detainees, and, uh, and then we're tough on them. Yeah, we bring them to justice. Do you? Well, that brings us to the amazing fact of the day. In the 13 years that Guantanamo Bay has been open, there has been a total of 779 detainees. You ready for this? How many convictions have there been in 13 years? Just six convictions. Out of 779 detainees in 13 years, only six convictions. It's a kangaroo court. It doesn't work. Every time they go to uh, do new trials, the judges go, well, we're violating like 18 different rules again. I don't know how to resolve that. Okay, let's try again. Yeah, here's what you do. You put them through the regular process. In this case, Eric Holder was completely right. If we'd already brought up Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and all the other guys that actually are the few terrorists, real terrorists at Guantanamo Bay, we, were, we would have already convicted them in our federal court system. They'd already be serving death sentences and, and on their way to executions, right-wingers, wouldn't you love that? Probably most of the country would love that. Like, yes, we're going to bring that to justice. We're going to execute them. I like the bringing them to justice part, okay? And I'm sure that the Republicans would celebrate in the streets when the executions happen. Let's get on that road. You follow the law. You don't do what you've been doing in Guantanamo, which is completely lawless. Okay, now more amazing facts here. About 85% of the 779 men ever held at Guantanamo are no longer there. Most left during the Bush administration. Did you know that? By the way, Colonel Morris Davis is the guy writing this, uh, and he was one of the prosecutors at Guantanamo Bay. So he knows what he's talking about. So 85% are already gone, most under Bush. Okay, of the 122 men detained, nearly half have been cleared for transfer by unanimous votes of military intelligence, law enforcement, and diplomatic officials who determined that the detainees could not be prosecuted, posed no identifiable threat to the United States, and did not need to remain in our custody. Nevertheless, 56 men cleared to leave still remain at a cost of about $3 million a year per detainee. Think about how mental that is. 56 guys cleared, some of them for years, the military, everyone has said they are no threat. They should not be at Guantanamo. But Republicans put in laws that President Obama had to, he says he had to agree to. 
He says, I wish I closed it on day one. But you didn't, uh, and you thought the Republicans would agree with you. Of course they're not going to agree with you. And now they had him sign laws where they say you can't uh, give those detainees back to their home countries. But the military and every single person we have in the government that looked at him says, they, they, they pose no threat. They shouldn't be here. They're the wrong guys. They're not, they're not supposed to be here. No, nope, we're not going to get rid of them. Now, okay, if you're a right-winger who does not believe in logic and does not believe in facts, you're like, oh, no, I, yeah, I don't care what every single person said. I don't care if the entire Pentagon and every person that looked at it, law enforcement, et cetera, all said they're innocent, not guilty, or they don't belong there. Well, I don't care. Well, I don't care. I will keep them there anyway. But at least look at the cost. $3 million a year. There's 56 of them. That's $168 million a year that we throw in the garbage every single year because we're keeping detainees that we have already cleared for release because some idiot right-wingers think, oh, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be tough on the terrorists and the non-terrorists. No, all you're doing is being tough on our budget and costing us a ton of money and the respect of the whole world because we're keeping people that our government has declared not guilty and we won't let them go. Insane. We're speaking to Spencer Ackerman of The Guardian. Last week, he published a story headlined, Bad Lieutenant, American Police Brutality Exported from Chicago to Guantanamo. The article looked at Richard Zuli, who used torture to extract confessions from minorities for years in Chicago, and then went on to work at Guantanamo. This is a clip of Lethariel Boyd, one of the innocent men Zuli interrogated in Chicago. I was mounted to the wall and floor. I remained in that room through two lineups, and um, I remember I asked, uh, after that second lineup, I asked Zuli if um, anybody had picked me out of the lineup, and he said no. And I said, see, I told you, you got the wrong guy, I haven't done anything. And he smiled at me. And said, uh, we're charging you anyway. Lethariel Boyd served 23 years in prison before he was found to be wrongfully convicted. So, Spencer, can you talk more about uh, Richard Zuli and how you came across his police record? Sure. Uh, the Guardian excerpted the Guantanamo Bay manuscript of Mohamedou Ould Slahi, whose interrogation at Guantanamo Bay is just one of the most brutal that, that we've ever known about thus far. And uh, my editor asked me if I would go through uh, the manuscript uh, ahead of the excerpt and just see if there were any news stories we might want to do out of it. And one of the footnotes mentioned that in government reports uh, and, and other sources, uh, including a really fantastic uh, piece of reporting by Jess Braven of the Wall Street Journal, his 2013 book, The Terror Courts, the lead interrogator during the most intense, torturous period of Swahi's interrogation was a Chicago police officer named Richard Zuli. And I thought, well, I had never heard about uh, a U.S. police officer 
uh, being in, in any U.S. Uh, military or, or intelligence uh, interrogation facility, what must his record in Chicago have been like? Uh, and from there, uh, found some court cases, including Lethereal Boyd's federal civil rights case against Zuli, uh, got in contact with his lawyer, found out about some more cases, and started uh, pulling records to find out uh, what this guy's record in Chicago was. And we found some really ominous parallels between how he policed Chicago's streets and what he did in Guantanamo Bay torture centers. And what happened with Lethereal ultimately? Lethereal Boyd, uh, after 23 years of being put in prison on a murder that there was never any physical evidence that he committed, uh, was found uh, in 2013 by an investigation from the Cook County State's attorney uh, to have his conviction voided as it was completely baseless and they found there was no evidence that could justify keeping him in prison even though he had served 23 years. And the suit? And now, after he got out, they filed, Lethereal Boyd and his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, uh, filed a civil rights suit to try and get some kind of justice for Lethereal, uh, and as well, uh, try and great, uh, create both more disclosure around the way Chicago police practices have, at, have, uh, have operated, including Richard Zuli. So let's go back to one of Zuli's victims. This one, though, not in Chicago, in Guantanamo, uh, Mohamed Ulzahi. During interrogations at Guantanamo, you report, approve then, by Secretary of Defense uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Slahi detailed the treatment in his memoir, which was just published. Um, uh, in this clip from The Guardian's video report about his case, we hear his lawyer Nancy Hollander and actor Dominic West reading from his diary. Mohammedu was subjected to a whole list of torture techniques that had been approved by the Secretary of Defense. They told him they had taken my mother from Mauritania and put her in a single cell in Guantanamo. And if he didn't give officials the information they expected, she would be severely tortured. Significantly, they included what in Guantanamo was known as the frequent flyer program. And they called it that because they wouldn't let people sleep and they proceeded to torture him. Blindfold them if he tries to look. One of them hit me hard across the face and quickly put the goggles on my eyes, earmuffs on my ears and a small bag over my head. They tightened the chains around my ankles and my wrists. Afterwards, I started to bleed. I thought they were going to execute me. Mohamedou Slahi remains at Guantanamo to this day and is yet to be charged with a crime. Spencer Ackerman, if you can talk about this and then also talk about whether the Chicago media is following up on these explosive reports where you're making these connections. Yeah, so uh, it wasn't just that uh, the military couldn't charge, uh, or anyone couldn't charge Salahi with anything. Military investigators uh, for, for the prosecution found that the reason why they couldn't charge him with anything is what Richard Zuli did to Mohamedou Salahi. That uh, the torture that Salahi was subjected to by the United States of America so tainted all of the evidence in this case that it became fundamentally unchargeable. In 2010, by the way, a federal judge uh, ruled in Salahi's habeas case that he had to be let go. Um, 
Barack Obama's Justice Department has appealed that decision, and that's why Swahi is still in Guantanamo Bay today. Now, as we were uh, reporting this, we found that there were these connections between the way Zuli tortured uh, Swahi and his uh, uh, police work as a Chicago detective. Swahi was short shackled for extended periods of time. We found that happened to Ethereal Boyd. We found that happened to Benita Johnson. We found that happened to Andre Griggs. Uh, Johnson and Griggs, for instance, uh, were shackled for uh, between, they say, uh, 24 and 30 hours in their cases. Uh, Andre Griggs was suffering through heroin withdrawal during that time, and he wasn't given medication for that. Uh, and this was done as a, as a method to try and uh, get Griggs and Johnson uh, to confess to crimes that they say they never committed. Those confessions uh, form the vast majority of the evidence against them. Uh, and this was something that we saw as well from Zui doing uh, at Guantanamo. He told Swahi, uh, you can either be a witness or you can be a defendant. Uh, all he had to do was confess. Swahi's torture, much like with, with Griggs and with Johnson, uh, was so bad that eventually he just said, I'll sign whatever you put in front of me. He, as he put it in his book, what, if you want to buy, I am selling. Uh, before that happened, is just one of the methods that Zuli employed, Zuli threatened to have his mother taken to Guantanamo Bay in what he described as its all-male environment. I don't think it's, it's particularly hard to understand that to be a rape threat. Uh, very quickly before we go, Chicago has a long history of uh, this issue of police torture. This month, the notorious Chicago police commander, John Burge, was released from a halfway house after he served four and a half years for lying under oath. But what he's accused of was leading a torture ring that interrogated more than 100 African-American men in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s. They routinely used electric shock, suffocation with plastic bags, typewriter covers, among other methods, to extract confessions from men who were laid shown to be innocent. The Chicago Torture Justice Memorial Project documented some of the men's stories. This is Shadid Mumin. He handcuffed me real tight. Uh, said he cut my circulation off. He went out of the room and stayed, I guess, for about an hour. And he came back and tried to talk to me. What could I tell him, you know, about the robber? I told him I couldn't tell you anything about the robber. I don't know about what you're talking about. And he said then that, oh, you're going to play tough. Say, you will tell us before you leave here what we want to know. Say, I've been known to get out of people's what I want. He got real upset and say, you will talk, you black mother. Say, I'll, I'll make you talk, keep you in here warm. So I still don't say So he, in angry, he rushed to the typewriter and grabbed the uh, plastic cover off there and just crammed it down over my head. And, and it's like he was a madman. And so I lost the heaven. I was trying to get my arm out behind the chair, but I couldn't do anything. And I passed out. And like I said, he gave me a breath of air, and I came to conscious, and you ready to talk? And I said, I don't have anything to tell you still. So he do it again. The third time, out of the third time, that's when I told him, I said, I'll tell you whatever you want to know, man. Just don't do this no more. That's Shadid Mameen speaking about his interrogation by former Chicago Police Commander John Burge, statistics compi compiled by the Pol People's Law Office. So Chicago has paid at least $64 million in settlements and judgments in civil rights cases related to Burge's police abuses alone. The Chicago Reader reported some of the Burge techniques may have been learned when he was in Vietnam, where he served as a military policeman. Spencer, we're going to end on John Burge. Any connection to Richard Zuley? So not 
directly, uh, even though they, they served in Chicago around the same time, supposedly uh, from everyone I've talked to, including Flint Taylor, uh, whose Burge is uh, probably chief uh, legal investigator, doesn't seem like they actually work together. Nevertheless, there is a context for this in Chicago. There's a long-standing tradition of police abuses primarily against African-American uh, residents of Chicago. It sits now with what we're reporting at this uncomfortable intersection between both that long and nefarious history of abuse against African Americans primarily in Chicago and this post 9-11 era in which uh, secret detentions, long time interrogations without charge and so forth uh, seem to be now increasingly influencing domestic police work. And is the Chicago media picking it up, especially in this time of a mayoral re-election uh, re race? Uh, they seem to uh, be running uh, reports based primarily on the Chicago police denial given to us. We'll see if that changes. Spencer Ackerman, national security editor at The Guardian, where he's published a two-part series on police abuse in Chicago that disappeared. Chicago police detain Americans at abuse-laden black site and bad lieutenant American police brutality exported from Chicago to Guantanamo. go, all things go, drove to Chicago, all things know, all things know. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. I drove to New York in a van with my friend. The Guardian with a fantastic and unfortunate story about what is happening in Chicago and how we might have brought some of those CIA black sites uh, that we were famous for during the Iraq war back home. Now it's in Chicago and uh, we'll let the Guardian take it from there. The Chicago Police Department operates an off-the-books interrogation compound rendering Americans unable to be found by family or attorneys while locked inside what lawyers say is the domestic equivalent of a CIA black site. Okay, So that sounds unbelievable. So let me give you details of what happens there and you'll begin to understand what's uh, going on at this crazy place. It's in Homan Square in Chicago, and here's what they do. Uh, they uh, keep arrestees out of official booking databases. That should not happen under any circumstance. There's beatings by police resulting in head wounds, there's shackling for prolonged periods, and there's denying attorneys access to the secure facility. If someone asks for an attorney, you give them an attorney. That's the law in the United States of the land. Law of the land. Apparently not in Chicago. Um, and it gets worse. Again, quoting the Guardian here. At least one man was found unresponsive in Home and Square, interview room, and later pronounced dead. That's what happens when you have no accountability. I'm going to get back to that, gentlemen, because that story is unreal. So now, first let me tell you about Brian Jacob Church. He is one of uh, what is being called a NATO 3. There are three guys who were arrested at a NATO protest. Now, instead of 
taking the guys, if you're really worried that they were a significant concern, and booking them and going through the process, they take him to this black site instead. And uh, Church explains what happened next. He says, it brings to mind the interrogation facilities they use in the Middle East. The CIA calls them black sites. It's a domestic black site. When you go in, no one knows what's happened to you. So in his case, he was shackled for 17 straight hours. He had written the his lawyer's info on his arm because he knew he was going to a protest and that he might get arrested. He asked specifically for a lawyer. He was denied. That is wildly illegal and unconstitutional. They didn't read him as Miranda warnings, also unconstitutional. And they just flat out denied him an attorney while they kept there, kept him there and kept interrogating him. This is what some parts of our country have turned into. Okay, more from the Guardian. Unlike a precinct, no one taken to Homan Square is said to be booked. Witnesses, suspects, or other Chicagoans who end up inside do not appear to have a public searchable record entered into a database indicating where they are, as happens when someone is booked at a precinct. Lawyers and relatives insist there is no way of finding their whereabouts. Those lawyers who have attempted to gain access to Homan Square are most often turned away even as their clients remain in custody inside. They're making guys disappear. What the hell is this? I mean, this is beyond outrageous. Now, this dates back uh, apparently a long time, and if you thought it was just about terrorism, <laughs> of course not. Now they're bringing people involved with drugs into the black site and gang-related uh, activities. And that is such a broad category that, well, now regular course of business is done with. The Constitution, who cares? The cops don't like somebody in Chicago, and they make them disappear for a while. Now, normally, it's for a while, and they keep them shackled up and violate all their rights, and at some point bring them back into the official system, unless they've died. So let me tell you about that case. On February 2nd of 2013, John Hubbard was taken to Homan Square. Hubbard never walked out. The Chicago Tribune reported that the 44-year-old was found unresponsive inside an interview room and pronounced dead. The Cook County Medical could not locate any record for the Guardian indicating a cause of Hubbard's death. It remains unclear why Hubbard was ever in police custody. So this is what our police do in this country now? They take you in, they make you disappear, they don't tell anybody why they took you in, you die, they don't tell anybody why you died or how you died, and then they just wrap it up. That's it, we're done with it. Who cares? He died at a black site. What difference does it make? Does this sound like America to you? And this is not a partisan issue. I mean, Democrats have been running Chicago for a long time, and you know, Republicans are the ones who started the torture and interrogation program in Guantanamo Bay. In fact, there's a guy who worked at this place and at Guantanamo. You see how we're beginning to intermingle everything. There's military equipment all over this facility. They have uh, these giant things that basically look like tanks inside there. We've militarized the whole country, and this is an outward symbol of it, and in reality, something very, very important that needs to be addressed immediately as a practical matter as well. And Tracy Siska makes a great point about this. Uh, she is a criminologist and a civil rights activist with the Chicago Justice Project. She said, the real danger in allowing practices like Guantanamo or Abu Ghraib is the fact that they always creep into other aspects. They creep into domestic law enforcement, either with weaponry like the militarization of police, or interrogation practices. That's how we ended up with a black site in Chicago. Now remember what they said to us when we found out about the CIA black sites all over the world, that we had reopened some of the former Soviet gulags. 
They said, no, that's okay. It's just for foreigners, and it's outside the country. Now, all of a sudden, it's inside the country. And, of course, they said, oh, these extraordinary actions, don't worry. It's only in the case of terrorism. Now, it's in the case of many different things. Oh, they were a gang. I don't know. Is that close to terror? What's in a gang? Who's in a gang? How does that count? Who cares? It doesn't really matter because you don't have to explain anything in a black site. <laughs> it's not in the record. There's, we don't, somebody dies there and we don't even explain that. <laughs> what difference does it make? We don't even need an excuse. This is how wild lawbreaking begins. This is how the destruction of the Constitution begins. And it's not something that will lead to something bad. This is bad. It's already come home. Our chickens have come home to roost. And there is Chicago right now. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, we charge genocide. Police violence is an epidemic in this country. The murder of people of color at police hands makes headlines so often, it's now impossible for me to keep up with timely episodes to cover all of the killings and uprisings coming together in response. With so much happening around police brutality, the next several activism segments are going to focus on specific communities targeted by law enforcement and tactics being highlighted for change. Writers and advocates from The Nation and Truth Out are among those calling for an end to policing altogether. In the words of Michael Denzel Smith, we need to abolish the pillars of white supremacy, and I think the police is one of those. Until that day... There are practices to end and departments and individual officers to hold accountable. The group leading that work in Chicago is We Charge Genocide. Their slogan, to organize, to transform, to end police violence. It's simple, and it's taken them all the way to the United Nations Committee Against Torture in Geneva. They are a grassroots intergenerational volunteer group who has created some amazing resources through community organizing, protest, and their website, wechargegenocide.org. Chicago residents can contact their aldermen about the pending reparations ordinance, stay up to date on hearings, and report their encounters with the Chicago police. Their hashtag and handle, Chai Cop Watch, aggregates eyewitness accounts, personal experiences, and reports from hearings and protests. You can also sign their petition demanding that Detective Dante Servin be permanently removed from the force following his March 21st, 2012 shooting of Rikia Boyd. The courts refuse to hold him accountable for her murder, but the police board can step in to terminate his employment. I mean, really, it's the least they can do. 
The We Charge Genocide website also has some amazing graphics, so an easy way to show your support and solidarity is to post those to your social media networks. Give them a follow on Twitter and like on Facebook to make their campaigns more visible and to help them build a broad coalition for change. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If ending police violence matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about We Charge Genocide via social media so that others in your network can support their work. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage? I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this book, They Thought They Were Free, by Milton Mayer. Milton Mayer has been dead for a while. I, I, you know, I'm, I think it's been about a little over a decade. I could be wrong about it be longer than that. And um, in 1955, actually it would have been 53, 54, the early 50s, because this book was published in 55, so it probably took him a couple of years to write it. But in the early 50s, he was a publisher, or he was a, uh, you know, one of America's more well-known investigative reporters working out of Chicago for the sh- big Chicago paper. I, I think it was the Sun-Times, but um, I'm running from memory here. And he asked his publisher if he could have an assignment where he went to Germany. You know, he was a, he was a Jew of German ancestry. Uh, if he could go to Germany and find 10 good Nazis and befriend them and find out why they became Nazis. Because America was still in shock. as the I mean, even in the mid-50s, many of the horrors of the camps and what happened and what went on and how it happened and who did what were still, still coming in. And he wrote this amazing book. Now, I'd like to preface this by just, you know, a couple of quick stories. This is just from today's, you know, today's news over Democratic Underground, 951 Riverside, posting an article, Police shoot, kill 80-year-old man in his own bed, don't find the drugs they were looking for. Right? They, they smashed into this guy's house because some cop says, oh, it smells like they're making meth there. And they shot and killed the 80-year-old guy in his bed. And there were no drugs. He was a white guy, by the way. Black guy gets pulled over by a cop in Florida for playing NWA's F the Police song on Thanksgiving Day. Cop says, you're really playing that song? Pull over. Right. Here's a, uh, this over a Daily Kos. San Jose police officer on leave after posting death threats to protesters on Twitter. San Jose police officer Philip White said, threaten me on Twitter, threaten me and, I, and or my family, and I will use my God-given and law-appointed right and duty to kill you. Right, say police officer. 
By the way, if anyone feels they can't breathe or their lives matter, I'll be at the movies tonight, off-duty, carrying my gun. So, my question is, and it's probably more directed at at white people in my audience than black, because I think that most African Americans have lived with this throughout their lives, although I'd love to hear from our African American viewers and listeners about whether you think things are getting worse or better in terms of interactions with the police. But much like the economic circumstances that African Americans faced 30 years ago before Reaganomics, where, you know, their, their unemployment rate was higher, their wages were lower, harder to get into college, all those other things. That's now happening to, to white middle class, and the white middle class is becoming the white working poor. And so, therefore, America, in quotes, which, of course, is white America, is waking up and going, wait a minute. And one of the things that that middle class America or white America, whatever you want to call it, is is waking up to is that we are, as a nation, becoming more authoritarian. Just the fact that the vice, the former vice president of the United States can go on television and defend anally raping prisoners as a legitimate form of interrogation. I, you know, the, the murder of a man, you know, frozen to death in a, in, a, in a jail cell as a legitimate form of interrogation, chaining people to the ceiling for hours, for, for you know, 22 hours, their joints start disintegrating, legitimate form of interrogation. These are all banned by international law, drowning people, waterboarding. I doubt Dick Cheney would feel that these were legitimate techniques for interrogation if they were used on one of his kids. But none of his kids are, have ever or ever will join the military, just like he never joined the military. So it's the U.S. soldiers who are facing this. But back to Milton Mayer. Milton Mayer uh, wrote, he, he got to know these ten guys. One was a baker, one was a college professor. And he talks about how Nazism overcame Germany, this authoritarianism. He says it was not by attack from without or by subversion from within. It was with a hoop and a holler. It's what most Germans wanted. They wanted it, they got it, they liked it. He says, I came home a little bit afraid for my country, afraid of what it might want and get and like under combined pressure of reality and illusion. I felt and feel that it was not German man that I met, but man. He happened to be in Germany under certain conditions. He might be here under certain conditions. He might, under certain conditions, be me. If I and my countrymen ever succumbed to that concatenation of conditions, no constitution, no laws, no police, and certainly no army would be able to protect us from harm. So this morning we were talking about this, and Shano is like, I'm, who's a white guy? I'm dealing with the police differently. I'm you know, I would have given them some lip five years ago. I don't anymore. Because, you know, they're all about killing people now. So how did this come about? I would say it, it came about in the wake of 9-11. In the wake of, you know, you, you, you can't make a joke at an airport. You can't make a joke anywhere. That we became a nation of frightened people. Mayor writes, he, this is uh, actually, the, these are the words of one of the ten Nazis that he got to know in Germany. This guy was a college professor. 
who was a good German, right? Never protested the Nazis, just kept doing his job all through the war, teaching college until finally, you know, Hitler fell. He said this separation of government from the people, this widening of the gap took place so gradually and so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the cries and ref crises and reforms, real reforms too, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath, the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. Kind of reminds you of the conservative call for less government. To live in this process, he says, is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me, unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us ever had occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained on occasion, or regretted that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must someday lead to, one no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in his field sees the corn growing. And then one day, it is over your head. This is Adriana Langston, and I am calling you from Long Beach, California. I wanted to compliment you on the excellent reporting or curation of reporting that's been done about police brutality, about Black Lives Matter. And in episode 318, you mentioned the fact that you were going to be doing a curated episode about Freddie Gray's death and the Baltimore uprising. I just wanted to point out that there are two aspects of that story that I think are critical, not just to the Freddie Gray situation, but to the policing in minority communities and the out-of-control policing issues in the overall. The first is the militarization of the police forces in the United States through the federal 1033 program. Now, back in December of 2014, the New York Times reported that Obama was asking for changes in the 1033 program, but it ended up that those changes weren't to slow the program down. It was just to ask for more paperwork from the police departments, paperwork that was supposed to ensure better oversight. But if there's no regulatory accountability, then there's not going to be any oversight. The other is a program that that's only been covered, as far as I can tell, in Ebony Magazine by reporter Christian Davis. And it's about a special program where the Israeli army invites police department representatives from the United States to be trained in Israeli army techniques. I'm talking about the techniques that they use to do what they do to the Palestinians. Those are not techniques that are going to lead to the de-escalation of situations where everyday police officers are involved with the mentally ill who are the most likely people to get shot dead while unarmed by the police and they are certainly not techniques that are going to lead to respectful policing in minority communities that doesn't lead to resentment 
So those are two aspects that I hope you can find audio for in your upcoming Baltimore show. And please continue to do the good work. And thank you so much for going on the climate hike because I sure am way too out of shape to do it myself. Hello there, brother Jay. This is V from uh, Western New York. And the reason why I'm really calling back is I was listening to episode uh, 915. Too often there's a desire to intellectualize something which is dramatically emotional. And I said dramatically, and I should say traumatically emotional. As a black man, I have become keenly aware that equality in this nation, in this country, is a myth. And that the conversations which should be happening but are not and will not happen in this country because too many people profit from them not happening. The conversations which should be occurring should be centered firstly around definitions. Not only definitions from today's views, from, the, from today's viewpoints, but the original definition of words like race, racism, racial, which is an actual word, racialized, and words surrounding that prejudice, bigotry, discrimination. That is not only a conversation which needs to be had, it is something which needs to be thoroughly discussed and finally established. Then, and only then, can we begin to actually deconstruct the structures which exist to perpetuate white supremacy. And even as we, we, we talk about doing it, we need to define those two. We need to realize that stereotypes are integral to white supremacy and its survival. We need to all realize that capitalism is built on white supremacy. Martin Luther King died fighting against capitalism and what he realized it was doing to the black community. These are the things that need to happen. From a strictly emotional standpoint, as Layla Africa says, black people aren't emotional people. And even though what I just laid out for you is intellectualized, it is built off of a powerful passion. I'm tired of seeing my people murdered. I am tired of listening to liberal after liberal after liberal discuss the murder of black bodies like they're discussing the next movie coming out about, I don't know, pick a topic. Things will either change or disintegration will continue. I enjoyed the show. Peace. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, as I mentioned in the previous episode and Adriana, one of the callers today, pointed out, uh, my plan is for the next episode to be about Baltimore and, well, what would you like to call it? The riots? the uprisings. Uh, that's what I want to talk about today. 
knowing that that episode is coming up, I was thinking a bit about how that conversation has been going so far. Uh, what's the general consensus in the progressive media? How have people generally been talking about it? And so if, if you, like I, have been listening to lots of different people uh, weigh in, you've probably heard at least one, if not half a dozen people, evoke the Martin Luther King quote about riots being the language of the unheard. And so, yeah, I mean, I heard lots of people bring that up as not an excuse, but an explanation. There's a big difference between those two things. Uh, so as an explanation for why these types of riots happen and sounded pretty good to me. I didn't uh, think much deeper about it. And then I heard one person mention sort of offhandedly in response to someone bringing up that quote, uh, someone responded saying, yeah, but you know, that's only half the quote. And then they didn't go into any more detail about it. I thought, huh, that's interesting. I mean, clearly that's not, I mean, there's some context that could be added to that. Maybe I'll check that out. I didn't really expect it to completely unseat my understanding of, of what he meant by that quote, but it would certainly add some context. So for my own interest, I looked it up and for your interest, I'm going to read it to you. So this is the full paragraph in which that quote uh, exists in the original Martin Luther King speech. So he says, Now I wanted to say something about the fact that we have lived over these last two or three summers with agony, and we have seen our cities going up in flames. And I would be the first to say that I am still committed to militant, powerful, massive nonviolence as the most potent weapon in grappling with the problem from a direct action point of view. I am absolutely convinced that a riot merely intensifies the fears of the white community while relieving the guilt. And I feel that we must always work with an effective, powerful weapon and method that brings about tangible results. But it is not enough for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without, at the same time, condemning the contingent, intolerable conditions that exist in our society. These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in violent rebellions to get attention. And I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear. It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last 12 or 15 years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and about the status quo than about justice and humanity. Unquote. So there you go. That's the full quote, just in case you needed it. Now you have it. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, how does it relate to what's happening today? What do you think about some people actually referring to what's happening in Baltimore now as an uprising rather than a riot, specifically to cast it in a different light, to put a whole new frame on what's going on? Uh, maybe someone wants to chime in on how Martin Luther King is held up as the, you know, the, the successful leader of the civil rights movement. While usually it is completely ignored that you know he was only as successful as he was because the counterbalance of people like Mal Malcolm X, you know, if if uh, Martin Luther King was maybe you know the anvil against which white society had their backs pressed, uh, it was the hammer of Malcolm X that was <laughs> that they would see coming at them that you know made them give in and and pass the civil rights legislation. And so then how does that relate to what Martin Luther King has to say about riots may be different than what Malcolm X has to say about riots. And 
Should we, you know, hear or trust only one and not the other, or should we only be given half the story all the time anyways? Like I said, I would love to hear from you, especially if you've been to any of these actions that have been happening, Ferguson, Baltimore, anywhere else that uh, uprisings, riots have been happening in response to police killings, protests of any kind. I would love your insights on what's what's going on, what, what it feels like on the ground. Uh, you can call in the number again, 202-999-3991. It'd be really appreciated. Uh, but of course, you know, anyone should call if you have opinions, uh, insights, I would love to hear from you. Just another quick plug before I go. As I've mentioned in the last couple of episodes, I'm doing the climate hike and I'm fundraising this month. I have set a goal of $5,000. Fundraising has started slow, I gotta be honest. It always starts slow, so I'm not panicking yet. But if you'd like to uh, make sure I don't start panicking, please head over to bestoftheleft.com, click on the big climate hike banner, donate what you can. It all goes to excellent organizations fighting climate change, and I am hiking dozens and dozens of miles as part of my you know, effort to encourage you to donate that money. So thanks again to everyone who is uh, planning on donating. Please head over and do that at your earliest convenience. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained